If you have your Bibles, turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. The setup will be a little bit different today than the norm, simply because some of the restrictions that we have. So hopefully in the next month or two, we'll be able to kind of reopen some of the, the children's ministries and things like that. So we're praying about that. So please bear with us. We're doing the best that we can with the regulations that have been set forth. And those of you that have, that have children, if, if they in any way get too loud, we do have the nursery available if you need to jump in there. Um, but if your children you know, are making a sound, it's perfectly fine. We're all one family, and sometimes, you know, even at the dinner table, we all make our sounds at times. So don't worry about that. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. I want to start off by asking something very simple. You ever been glad when you listen to the advice of others? You ever been glad that you actually were given advice and you followed it? And you saw that it was actually a benefit for yourself? You ever seen that? I mean, usually we, 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 we tend to have this self-sufficiency, right? We, we, we typically go, I know better than the person that just gave me that advice. But what if, what if we actually listened to advice and we saw that it saved us from a lot of pain and anguish? Well, you see, God gives us advice. God gives us instruction in his word. And he gives us commands that are really for our benefit. They're not there to hurt us. They're actually there to help us. Most of the world, including many Christians, they tend to look at God's law as a bunch of rules that are there to make them miserable. When God's law is really there to benefit our hearts and our lives. One of the things that I think is really difficult in trying to regulate moral, moral, morals in society apart from the word of God is that you're trying to make sinful man obey a bunch of rules that he himself will constantly break naturally because he doesn't have Christ. You see, we all start this life as sinners. Nobody needs to teach us how to lie. Nobody needs to teach us to take something that isn't ours. No one needs to teach us to do many wicked things. It comes naturally for us. And as we look at the word today, I want you to be encouraged and also warned about things that could really have an impact in your life, not just of the nation as a whole, but in your life as well. See, I believe personally that our nation is being judged. I believe that with all my heart. For not following God's instruction. For not doing the things that he, he's called us to do. And as was prophesied to Israel thousands of years ago, judgment is coming. Judgment is here, but there's also judgment coming. America is still hanging on by a thread. Nations around us, I don't know how much you've been paying attention to the news, nations around this country have been laughing at what's going on in America right now. I don't know how much you read outside of American newspapers like USA Today or CNN. A lot of nations outside of America are laughing at what's going on in this country. And the reason they're laughing is they're enjoying seeing us fighting. They're enjoying seeing the conflict. They're, they're enjoying seeing the tension. And I think it's very similar to the way we are sometimes as people. You ever have a fight in your family? And then you're a little more encouraged when you see other families fight. Isn't that the way we are? We have something going on in the home, and then you go like, oh, well, that couple also fights. All right, well, I'm a little better right now, I guess. And I think that's what tends to happen even on a national scale. People give themselves a pass once they see other people are doing the same thing in other countries. See, here's the thing. Many of us have probably not given much thought with all this stuff going on to eternal judgment as much as we should. We've been distracted by the physical and the present judgment that's here. We have not thought about eternal judgment that's coming. We're going to be looking at three things here in Joel chapter 2. We're going to look at the announcement of judgment in verses 1 through 11, the call to repent, verses 12 through 17, and number three, no shame in surrender, verses 18 through 32. I promise you, won't, we won't be here for an hour and a half, okay? We're, we're going to get through this, all right? Announcement of judgment, verses 1 through 11. Here's what it says. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them even for many successive generations. 
A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another, everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city, they run to the, on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter at the houses like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is a great and terrible. Who can endure it? See, one of the things that we have to be constantly aware of is that judgment, when it's announced, has many different things that can be meant by that. There could be a judgment that's here, present, and also a judgment that's in the future. In fact, one of the things that we see here is the day of the Lord that's mentioned. Little is actually known about this prophet Joel who writes this book, except for a few facts. Like his name itself actually means Yahweh is God. Scholars debate exactly what time frame that Joel is actually writing this book, because no other Old Testament book actually quotes Joel, which makes it hard to kind of pinpoint the exact date. What can, we, what can be stated here is really the warning that's mentioned right off the bat. Look at what it says in verse 1. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. As Michael Vlock actually states, he makes a statement about this. The coming day of the Lord that, that impacts both the land of Israel and the entire world is taught in the New Testament as well as the Old. The Old Testament prophets predicted that the day of the Lord would involve the judgment of the nations, the regathering of Israel, and an earthly kingdom following judgment. This scenario is actually affirmed in the New Testament, Matthew 24 and 25. To make this a little more clear, I just want to kind of break some of this down for you. In the present age, Jesus is in heaven and the nations do not yet submit to his authority as king. In the millennial kingdom, Jesus rules the nations on earth and punishes the nations that do not act as they should. And then in the final state, the eternal state, the nations act exactly as they should with no need of punishment any longer. There's much to be said on the subject of the day of the Lord and its significance in scripture. The phrase itself is actually found 18 times in the Old Testament and different authors throughout. It's a period of judgment and wrath from the Lord himself. So what we see here is the phrase has a lot of significance in the present to the audience that Joel's writing to, and also into, in the future. In fact, um, in Acts, it's mentioned the prophecy here in Joel chapter 2 when, on the day of Pentecost and what, how God actually moves to regenerate his own. Scripture has one original meaning, but other potential, potential implications, as we even see in the Messianic Psalms that are written. Here, the author is actually telling the nation of Israel that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. See, God, when he warns about judgment that's coming, he also tells us it's here, but not fully realized. Do you realize that God is already currently judging the nations, but they haven't reached that final point yet? See, here you have a description of devastation. Look at some of the things that are mentioned. You have dark clouds that are mentioned in verse number two. A powerful army looking to invade. Some, some are arguing that it's the locust that God sent with a famine. Verse six, you have fear that grips the nation. I don't know about you, but I think fear is definitely gripping our nation right now. I don't, I don't know too many people that are like, oh, it's great. This has been the best year of my life, right? This is 2020, couldn't be any better than this. I thought it was amazing, you know, we started the year off, everybody rings in the new year. Who knew this year was gonna, be, was gonna turn out the way that it did? Who knew that this year was gonna turn out the way that it did? None of us did. None of us did. 
And it seems like fear is exactly what's gripping our nation. I, I think the irony for, for me when I watch Facebook and, and see people post what they do, and I don't, I don't have any particular person in mind, I just think it's a general thing. I'm making this statement, so if you think I'm referring to you, I'm sorry, I'm not aiming at it. You know, well, all I'm saying is I find that more people post about we shouldn't be fearful, everybody's living in fear, the more I tend to think people that post that all the time are themselves living in fear, but I'll leave that alone. Uh, the, the reality is there's a devastating judgment that's coming. And it's already here. People just don't realize it. Because the reality is God is the one that is actually sending this, this judgment on Israel. God typically fights for Israel, except this time he's actually fighting them. He's actually opposed to them. So you might be wondering, well, in the context of the nation of Israel and God's pronouncing judgment, isn't that something that's already occurred? Why, why would this actually matter to me? Well, you see, this is exactly the way God deals with his children. He uses trouble in this life to bring us back to him. I mean, when, when have you been the closest to God? When everything's going great or typically when you're about to lose something or you've just lost something? Typically, it's when things happen in our lives that are devastating to us. And that's when we turn back to God in repentance. See, the things going around in this country and in the, around the world should be leading us to repentance and turning back to God. It's no accident that we find ourselves with these things going on. I don't know if you've been paying attention. We have a virus that's killed thousands. No one really fully understands or at least can't clearly explain it to us. We have racial tension amplified by the media, choosing who deserves coverage and who doesn't. Uh, economic devastation and disagreement on who essential workers are today. Uh, a double standard when it comes to the government and regular workers. Uh, an internal pain that many can't find help for. They don't know where they can turn because there's, there's not even an opportunity to have physical presence that they once had. And then even further, chaos and destruction of our society. I don't know how many of you have noticed, but this is not the way we've been running things for a long time. This is a very unique situation we're dealing with right now. This year has, has turned out a lot different than any of us have expected. Maybe a few people planned it, but you know, I'll leave that up to God to deal with if it is them. I just do know that God, God knows what he's doing in judgment, and he knows that he's going to bring his own to repentance. Don't look at judgment as always something terrible. It's there to warn us as believers. It's there to bring us back to God. All these things and more are solved when there's repentance or change regarding ourselves and our actions before God and others. Well, let's look at the second point, the call to repent, verses 12 through 17. Look at what it says here. 12 through 17. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? See, the call to repent is not just the call to Israel, it's the, the call for all nations. The gospel message is to go out to the world. And this time, what Israel's dealing with is a very real judgment that's coming their way. If you actually look at the process that Israel constantly went through, was they would fall into idolatry, turn away from following God, God would send an army, they'd conquer them, they'd be enslaved, they'd repent, and then get right back to doing what they did again, and go through the same process over and over. God is telling this nation the time to turn back to me, look at what he says in verse number 12. Now, now therefore. You know what the right time to get back to God is? Not three weeks out, not two weeks out, not tomorrow. Now, that's the right time. 
That's the right time it always is. I want to stop for a moment and make a statement regarding judgment and how it's important for us to understand who God is. You see, God might send what seems like straight opposition to a nation, but it's really for their benefit. You and I need a balanced view of God when trouble hits, especially when it comes to our theology. See, during this time, many, many are trying to be up, upbeat and positive, and they hate kind of the circumstance of everything going, going on, that they've literally reinterpreted who God is during this time. And you can't do that. God doesn't change based on the circumstances going on in your life. Guess who changes? We do. People around us do. God never changes. God's always been consistent. He's never shifted who he is. He's perfect in all his attributes. And you need to be able to balance God's justice and mercy at the same time. Not only look at love, which is really most of society, they just want to throw that word around, that's the only word that matters, love. God is perfect in his holiness, and yet many disregard that. Can I encourage you to see more what it is that God wants to change in you than he does in this nation? God wants to change something in you, not, not just everybody else. God's working in my heart. He's working in your heart, and he wants us to change. See, it's not always everybody else, and yet that's the way we approach life. This is a major disservice that's done to the church and to the nation when we strive only to make people feel better without telling them the root of the problem. You know, that would be the equivalent of you having cancer and me deciding, you know what, I don't want to make you feel bad, so I won't tell you you have that problem, even though you may have only a few months to live. Do you see how it's important to warn people of judgment? Do you, know, do you see why it's important that the prophet Joel here tells the nation of Israel that judgment is coming? No matter how many government reforms we have, and yes, I know this is going to be online, no matter what we try to implement regarding the tensions in our nation, no matter how much money we hand out to people, no matter how much we say we're in this together, let me tell you, it won't solve the problem. The problem's sin. The problem's sin. There's only one solution, the gospel. There's only one. You can rewrite everything you want, and it's still going to be the wickedness of man doing what it wants. If you want your nation to change, then you need to change. And I don't mean in just, I need to be more kind to people, okay? Guys, that's not what I'm talking about. You need to change on the inside. There's got to be something that God works in your heart and stirs in your heart to change and fix. And it shouldn't be based on just an emotional response because you felt bad for somebody. There needs to be lasting, permanent change that God convicts you over. Do the daring thing that David does. Search me and try me. That's a daring prayer to ask. God, you know what's inside. Show me what I'm not seeing. Now, here's a question. Did, did David do wrong to others? Sure he did. Sure he did. Did he set it up to kill someone that, imp that he impregnated his wife? Yeah. But here's what's interesting. David's response, actually, in Psalm 51 is against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. Your sin is against others is ultimately a sin against God. You need to understand that. You need to go to him for your heart of bitterness, anger, bias, anxiety, fear, you name it, whatever it is. You've got to go to God for that. Because going to somebody and just owning it before them without having a heart change that only God can perform is literally like saying, I love God, I love people without loving God first who are those people are actually made in the image of God. You can't love people properly if you don't love God properly. They're made in his image. You're going to love the things God loves if you love him the way you ought to. Going to others without owning it before God will never take care of the heart's problem. So here are a few things that we see here regarding repentance. In verse 12, the first part, there's a sense of urgency. Just mentioned it. Now, the, the sense of urgency for the nation of Israel is the same sense of urgency for all of us. The time is now to get back to God. Not only around election time. <gasps> Lord, please, please, Lord. Lord! That's not the time. The time is now. 
So many of us are concerned about the future for our children and grandchildren. Let me ask you to consider this. What's your heart like towards God today? Has your love for him grown colder or warmer? Are you more readily in the word now than you were before? See, here's, here's my big question for you and me. With all this stuff going on, have we been more reading newspaper articles or more of the word of God? Because I'll tell you, whatever you read more of, you're probably going to be a little more influenced by. Your steady diet of CNN is going to be a certain view, okay? Fox News isn't much better for those of you that are Fox fans, okay? The reality is, the Word of God is what's going to give you hope. Not some article by some obscure author that's telling you, you need to be afraid of all these things. And there might be valid things to be afraid of, I agree. But, are, but is it in balance? Are we keeping ourselves in check with the Word of God? What you feed on is what you have in. If your mindset's a certain way, it's probably because you've been reading certain things or listening to certain things. And yes, all of us would love to be able to go, yep, the rapture's tomorrow, we're out of here, we don't care anymore. But you don't have that guarantee. Neither do I. You need to be prepared today. And guess what? The best way to be prepared is repent now. So here's a question. Are you more consistent now in prayer or not? Are you hoping to fix all these things for your children by signing different petitions, which I have signed as well? Or are we more consistent in making sure we go to God as well on this stuff? Like, I always wonder if those petitions go anywhere. You know, 5,000 signatures signed goes there. I have no idea if that really did anything. I don't know. Maybe you could tell me. I've, I've yet to find a lot of these really impact the local community, even though I've signed probably dozens of them. When was the last time that you actually repented before God about something? Like, you, you knew there was something God convicted you of, and you went, you know what, Lord, I'm off on this. I really am. Like, I'm not doing this being a father thing right now, God. I'm not being the mother you want me to be. I'm not leading others well. I'm not pastoring my people, as it applies to me, the way I ought to. Maybe you've never repented. Maybe that's a possibility. Maybe it's a completely new concept to you. Let me encourage you by not finding your identity in your politics, your ethnicity. Find your identity in Christ. We all start as sinners. It's Christ that makes us saints. The one identity that you and I should grasp and take seriously is if you are called to be a saint, to live as a saint. Now, if we were to be honest, even though we're followers of Christ, we know that stuff comes that diverts our attention away from the things that he wants. There's always something that we're off on when it comes to God's word and how it confronts us. See, this part's going to be different for all of us. What God is going to work on in your heart may not be what he works on in someone else's heart. So you need to be patient with others because here's the, here's the truth. God's patient with you, okay? Like, there's a lot going on right now. Christians need to be a little more patient with others. You don't go up to somebody and grab them by the throat. You better do this now. That's not the way to do it. Full surrender, not partial. Look at verse number 12, the second part. Turn to me with all your heart. You know, I think the song, I Surrender All, is probably the biggest lie Christians sing. I really do believe that. Well, what, what, what makes you say that, Roman? Well, the reason I say this is when it comes to things of God, we surrender certain things easier than others, and to say that we surrendered all of it would be lying. In fact, most of us will go, let, let me illustrate. One person may be more convicted about giving of their time and possessions for the kingdom, while another is more convicted about their prayer life. But I think we can both agree that both are equally important to God, right? It's not like one is more important than the other. We are to give all of who we are to him. So if somebody says, well, you know, prayer is more important than giving of your money, well, then Jesus would respond with a very simple statement, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he's still going to get us for that one. We, we have to be consistent. And I think the reality is, is most of us, when we say, I surrender all, we don't even understand sometimes what we're saying. 
And I surrender all, we usually have something in our mind that we know we need to surrender to God, but we might not give everything. Does that make sense? God wants all of us, not just a part. Or even the parts that we're comfortable to give to him, right? That we, we reformed ourselves without his help. You know, I'm a better person now. I work a little harder. So, Lord, this is for you. It's not supposed to be some external show. Look at the second part of verse 12. The last part, I mean, verse 12. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. See, one of the most difficult things for us is to evaluate the sincerity of someone's repentance, right? When someone, someone is, has, been, has done something wrong, owning that wrongdoing, it's sometimes hard to decipher whether it's honest and genuine or not. You've got two extremes when it comes to owning personal sin. We go over the top and show everybody we're so sorry, and we make sure that others know by pointing out others that are doing the same thing we had just said we did, right? Like, you see a lot of that going on right now. You have people that are going over the top, they're, they're saying, I'm repenting of this sin, and then they push it on everybody else to do the same thing. Number two, we ignore what we need to own, and we double down in self-defense. This is the other option and the other extreme that people go to. And what we do is we don't want to own what it is that we've been confronted with. Let me, let me, let me stop and say this. You don't, own, you don't need to own others' sin, okay? I don't need to own everybody else's sin. I need to own my own sin. If you've been wrong and sinned against, that person owes you. There's no need for self-righteous hypocrisy in Christianity that gives people a sense of closeness with God based on an ex outward, exterior virtue, virtue signaling. There needs to be a change of heart. There are plenty of those in Jesus' time, by the way, that were always virtue signaling, if we use that term nowadays. Pharisees, that's what they're called. Ever heard of them? Jesus wasn't exactly kind to them. Hey, here's the thing, believer. Not everybody else is the only one that can be a Pharisee. You can be a Pharisee, okay? Like, don't argue with everybody else. They're all hypocrites. Welcome to the club. You're in there too, okay? Just stop, stop arguing that everybody else is the only one. The other thing here in the text that we see, it's so important. Remember God's long-suffering. Look at this. Last, second part of verse 13. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. So here's the thing, believer. God is always long-suffering. He always takes a long time before he judges. He rarely ever, the first time you do something, comes at you. He's very patient. He's very patient with our nation as well. Do you realize how much God has tolerated that our country's put, put him through as far as disobeying his laws and not caring what he says and does? We've wanted God to bless our nation while telling him that we don't want him. I want your blessing, God, but I don't want to live for you. Oh, I just, want to, I just want to make sure that we're a prosperous nation. Folks, if that's all we're aiming for in this country is just to be a prosperous nation without God, that's going to be the greatest curse, not the blessing. Don't assume that because we haven't seen any of the personal devastating consequences just now, that judgment is not coming on this nation to the full extent. I'm not talking eternal judgment per se, but I'm referring to national judgment as a nation, which is already here, actually. And it will continually get worse because the people of God have turned away from him as well. Just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, there is a point to where there are too few righteous people that God does not spare that nation of judgment, folks. I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. But here's what's amazing, though. This is why God always gives us hope. Even on the doom, the doom that's proclaimed, there's always hope. Verse 14, look what it says. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. What's always great about terrible news is there's always good news attached in Scripture. Anytime the gospel's mentioned, you have bad news, you're a sinner, you have God's wrath abiding on you, but there's a Savior. 
there's a solution. God does not ever leave us hanging without a solution. He always gives us a solution. He always gives us grace, and it's always available. The more and more we reject it, the more and more we get closer to that judgment. It doesn't have to end with the devastation of our nation if our nation repented. Revival in this land can actually reignite a blessing. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom from here on out. The difference is there's no blessing without repentance. You see that here? He's calling for them to repent, and he says, who knows, God might be blessing you now. God may still turn and give you a blessing. The difference is many of us think that we want a blessing from God without repenting of sin. You see, many, many people, even Christians, they want God to bless their lives when they don't want to follow his word. It's amazing how we do that, right? Like, Lord, bless my kids. I hope they, I hope they, they grow up to serve you. Well, how, how's the family situation going? Like, are, are we loving the spouse that we need, the way we need to? Is that where we start? Or are we kind of waiting God to miraculously, poof, make our kids believers? God works according to the principles set in his word. There's a reason why when it says train up a child the way he should go, and when he's old he shall not depart from it, there's a lot of personal responsibility there. I believe fully that God is sovereign over all things, including our children's lives. But I also believe that he holds me fully responsible in the way I raise my kids. And that he doesn't give me a pass because I believe he's sovereign. Does that make sense? He doesn't give us a pass, church, to not reach our community because we know he's a sovereign God. Opposition to the holiness of God will not reap the blessing of God. That's what most churches are trying to do today. They want to be opposed to the holiness of God, but they want God's blessing. Remember, folks, just because you may be blessed with financial possessions, that does not mean that that could not be a great curse later on on you. There are many people in this nation that are unsaved, they don't know God, they could care less about God, they're blessed with tons of riches, it became the greatest curse that they ever had because it was apart from the things of God. But if and when we repent, third point we're going to look at today is there's no shame. No shame in surrender, verses 18 through 32. is probably the longest section, but we'll get through it here. Look what it says. It says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, but be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord, of, Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come for you, come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And the praise of the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be a deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So, there's a lot here to unpack. 
We're not going to go through each and every single verse here, but God's response to their repentance is a restoration renewal. In fact, he starts off, and look at what he says in verse 18, he will pity his people. The nation of Israel, if they repent, God is looking to restore them and show pity on them. The land that he promised Israel, he will guard it, it will still be theirs. By the way, Israel will still have their land. God has not nullified that. If God ever nullified what he promised Israel, then we can't bank on him to keep his promise to us. That's just not going to happen then. That is the reason why Israel's land will still be Israel's land, regardless. God is still keeping it safe from them, for them. Number two, look at what we see here in this text. Verse 19, the nation of Israel will no longer be ashamed. He says that you will no longer be a reproach among the nations. See, God wants to restore Israel. He wants to draw them near to him, and he doesn't want them to live in shame any longer. If you've repented, you should know that you no longer need to live in shame over those sins that you've committed. They've been washed away. I don't know why a lot of Christians live in shame when God has forgiven them. So many times I think we as believers and Christians live in shame is because we don't care to repent. We're stubborn, yet we want to have joy. We want to have the response that's later in this text. There's cause to rejoice. Like, if God's redeemed you, you should be rejoicing. Christians that are miserable people are oxymorons when it comes to Scripture. Like, you're not consistent to what God wants you to do. The love of the Lord has really stirred my heart, but I'm the most miserable person you'll meet. Well, that's a great testimony. Have you seen what's been going on? We never have any hope. We're all doomed. What happened to God's for you, huh? The, the irony is people want that, but they don't want to repent, and then they wonder why it keeps going in the same process. See, here's the thing. You have cause to rejoice, just as he says here. Be glad and rejoice, in verse 21. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. You've made things right with God. You should be rejoicing about that. Now, if you've been, like, not spending time with God, you probably are going to be miserable, right? Like, that's just not going to go well. You're not going to get up and go, you know what, that worship tune on the queue really, really turned me back into my love for the Lord. You didn't spend any time with him any other way. It's one of the reasons why a lot of our emotions are so fraudulent many times. It's the reason why so many times when it comes to repentance of sin, it's a false repentance. How do we know that? We cried a few tears, we felt a little bad, and we did the same thing three hours later. Some of us, it's 20 minutes later, but you know, you get my point. No one wants the gospel if the gospel made you miserable, believer. The gospel message is not terrible news, it's good news. Yet the way you and I live, it's, it seems like it's terrible. I can't have fun in my life anymore. Yeah, God, God's, just, God's just here to make our lives miserable, isn't he? Is that, is that the way we, we view God as believers? God has given us a cause to rejoice. We have an eternal hope, a heaven that's waiting for us, a new Jerusalem that's waiting for us. Believer, you're going to be in charge of things in glory. What part of that do you not remember in the Bible? Your little shack that you might be living in right now is not what you're going to be living in later. you got something amazing waiting for you. But here's the thing, you got to put work in in this life. There's some effort that needs to be put in your life. You can't go around and go, God, I hope you tell me what to do, but I won't care to do it. You ever have this look? I don't know, as a parent I have this typical thing happens. You tell your children something and they give you this, they don't even know what you meant. They give you that nod, and you know they still didn't get it. I feel like that's how God is with us. You know, he'll tell us something, we're like, yes, Lord, that's right, yeah, I'm going to do it. Then do it. What are you waiting on? And some things are not even all that hard for us to explain if we think through it. Like, God wants us to be generous. What's so hard about defining that? Like, oh, no, you know, he, he meant in this way over here. He didn't really mean money. 
He didn't really mean time. He wants me to be kind. Except to my boss. I can talk to him any way I want. That's like the exception to that verse. There's no greater joy, as John actually says, than seeing others walk with God. There's nothing more encouraging for me as a pastor than when I see people that have been in the Word of God and they're convicted about something and I see immediately do, they're doing something different in their life than they did last week. I remember very distinctly, there was one sermon I preached a few months ago. And the very next week, somebody in our church decided to do packages for people in this church. Just randomly, hey, I love you, I care about you, here's something for you. Like it blew me away, I'm like, that's how it's supposed to be. The word of God convicts us so we then change on the inside and we repent over things that we've hardened in our hearts. There's nothing more encouraging than when the word of God affects a believer's heart and they go out and do something for the kingdom. And they make a change in their obedience. But I think the reason why that problem occurs in our lives where we don't see ourselves repenting consistently is we find ourselves kind of what happens here we don't believe these texts of Scripture readily. Look at verse 25 through 27. So I will restore to you the, lo the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent before you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. You know, what, you know what's amazing about this text right here, and I think this is what's missed by many of us, and look at verse 27 where he finishes this off. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Here literally there are locusts that really cause famine in the land. There's, there's literally a devastation that occurs in Israel. And what God actually promises them is I'm going to restore all that stuff that you lost. You know what happens to a lot of believers? They have a lot of previous years where they were unfaithful to God, before, maybe before they were saved, because they got saved later in life. And what they end up doing is thinking, man, I've already wasted a lot of years. What's the point of me trying now? Just as in a literal restoration that God does for Israel, he can restore those years that you lost. God promises to restore. Why are you not believing him? I wish I was saved when I was younger. Would have been able to make a bigger impact. What's stopping you right now? Because you're 40, you automatic automatically get a pass now? Is that what it is? Oh man, it's, I'm a lot older now. I don't have the chances that I had before. Hey, you've got people you know. You've got people you talk to. You, you have people you meet. God could still use you. What's wrong with us is that we assume that because we had a, a terrible past, God can't use us in the present or the future. You've got people that you, you can reach specifically that others can't, and you're literally ignoring the fact that God has given you hope. Now here's the reality, believer. You're right. You haven't arrived. I haven't arrived in every area. You might still have a quick temper. You might get anxious easily. You might have things in your life that you respond to still inappropriately. But that doesn't stop you from striving to reach others for Christ. That should not stop you. That is no excuse to stop you from actually doing things for Christ. If anything, be encouraged by someone like Peter written in the Bible. He screwed up all the time. Peter's a wonderful guy. Because you see him totally relate to all of us. And guess what? Still made a huge impact for the kingdom at the end. It's not God's fault that you don't want to believe him. That's our heart. And if you still doubt, ask God to give you a heart of faith that believes him. But here's the last part in this text right here. A future promise of a remnant. Verse 32. Look at this. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. And the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. There's always a remnant. I'm always encouraged by texts like this. 
Because when I think that I'm wasting my time working to strive to get the gospel out to the community, there's always a remnant. There are always people watching and listening. And God will call his own. And every fiber of my being that I want someone to come to Christ and I'm begging and pleading and saying, all these other things you're looking to is not going to save you. It's not going to help your inner struggle and your inner sin. With all those things, I'm always reminded God's got a remnant. He knows his own. There's an election of grace, as Paul makes the statement. God's promise will stand to the nation of Israel and their physical descendants, and also to his people, also to his church, who will one day actually reign with him. You see, you think of heaven all the time, what you need to realize is there's an actual reign that you're going to have with Christ one day, and you and I tend to forget that. We're all, we all think we're just going to be up in heaven with some harps. Nope. I don't know where you got that concept. There's way more than that in eternity. There's legitimate authority that you're going to be given in glory based on how you do here on this earth. And the reason why you and I don't believe it, here's why. We haven't seen it. That's why we don't believe it. We all say we walk by faith, but truly we don't. Because we still want to walk by sight, right? We want to actually see exactly how it's all going to turn out. And that's one of the reasons why you need to be careful about newspaper eisegesis, okay? Like reading in the current events and then going back to the Bible and going, hey, Lord, is it this? Read the Bible and then see the context around the world. Don't take the context of everything around the world and bring it, bring it to the Bible. It makes a difference which way you go. You don't deserve it and I don't deserve it, God's grace. It's all God's sovereign grace. All of it. If we trust in sovereign grace, we have nothing to fear, believer. Nothing. If you believe that God is in control of everything, why are you afraid? What can man do to me, right? Isn't that what we've actually said before? None of us are satisfied with the answers we're getting right now. I don't think anybody in here is going, you know, this media person, they've told me everything I want to hear about what's going on. They've been such an encouragement to me. No, that's not what's going on. In fact, what encouraged the disciples of Jesus Christ is the fact that Jesus sent them the comforter, and that's all they needed. Now, believer, you're probably thinking, man, this is the worst that it's ever been. It's going to be horrible. This is the hardest thing that we'll ever experience. It's coming. I can see it. The early church, brother or sister, they've gone through way more than you have. They had their children executed before them. You want to tell me coronavirus is bad? I promise you, when persecution strikes the way it did in the early church, that's a totally different game. And at that point, it's no game. It's reality. And it's not simulated on a screen where you're watching something online. It's real life. What we can be encouraged by is that God has given us the Holy Spirit as well. Just as the early church had the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit. And guess what, believer? What you don't need is comfort from everyone else. You need comfort from the capital C, Comforter. It amazes me how many people want comfort apart from the Holy Spirit. If he is the comforter, don't you think he would be the best one to comfort us? Sure, he sends other people our way. He absolutely does. But he is the ultimate comfort. None of the things that we've gone through make it easy for us. But I want you to, to, to hear something in regards to the day of the Lord and the judgment that's still coming. Look at what's, what, what is written for us in the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians, I believe it's chapter 5. It says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren... You have no need that I should write to you. Or actually, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. You are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
But let those who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And this last verse in this text, you need to pay attention to, believer. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Everything that's going on in this world does not compare to the fact that you have eternal life. God's not appointed us to wrath, believers. Don't fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one that can kill the body and the soul and cast it into hell. And you don't have that fear, and neither do I if we know Christ. Pay attention, believer, and know that God hasn't appointed you to wrath. The gospel is the greatest thing that you and I are to be concerned about right now. For our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends. If we have Christ, we've already won. You know why? Because he's already won. He's already conquered sin and death. I mean, we, we, we do that once a year. We, we celebrate that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For some reason, we kind of then go along our merry way in our year and forget that that's really the pinnacle of the gospel. We have the resurrected Christ, and we're, we're worried about everything else. We have the God of the universe who came in human flesh and paid for our sin and gave us eternal life, and we're concerned about everything else. Believer, you should be concerned about the gospel when it comes to your neighbors, your family, and your friends, and your children. So in conclusion, very straightforward question, very easy question, but you've got to be honest. What are you most concerned with? Right now, what are you most concerned with? Is it the current state of affairs? Are you just concerned with everything going on all the time? Like every day you wake up, it's like another news article you have to read right away. The future of this nation or your personal future? Or are you concerned with the gospel that saves from the wrath to come? Because that, I believe, is what you and I should be concerned most with. Let's pray.